0: Before we get rolling on the message that God's laid on my heart this morning, if we haven't met before, my name is Bryce. I serve here as our pastoral intern. And you may notice I've got a members only jacket on. I try to wear this every time I preach in here because I am attempting to this year bring members only back into style. I've gotten many requests to do that. Thank you, thank you. I also got these amazing shoes uh, to match with this red jacket for Christmas. I thought about moonwalking on stage, but I'm not Michael Jackson, so I'm not gonna try. And I will stick to preaching. But this morning I believe God has laid something on my heart that he actually initially put on my heart all the way back the first week of November when I was away at seminary classes in Kentucky. And I was on the way back that uh, Friday of that week uh, here to Mount Horeb. We had our confirmation celebration that Saturday, and I was tasked with giving a five-minute motivational talk of some kind to to keep our students moving forward in their walk with Christ. And I had planned on talking about something completely separate from this that I'll share with you today, but God laid this on my heart um, around Tuesday or Wednesday of that week and I never looked back. And as soon as he did, I prayed for an open door to share it with people. And today is that open door, and I'm very, very excited to share it with you. But I think I need to address the obvious before we go any further, and that is, many of us are still tired from staying up late on December 31st, 2020. Now, some of us are also tired from staying up late on January 1st, 2021, watching the Clemson Tigers get destroyed, and. Uh, I will admit I'm a Clemson fan. I've been a diehard Clemson fan all my life since I was in preschool. It's a funny story. I'll tell it a different time, but I was thinking there's gotta be a way I can wear orange to preach, and then after I went to bed around the end of the first quarter um, on uh, January 1st because of that beatdown going on, I decided not to. But New Year's Eve, whether we uh, plan to or not, I believe many Americans stay up late. Again, whether we plan to or not. And the reason I say that is because there are pretty much two categories that uh, everyone in this room and watching online falls into, I think. The first category are those of you that stay up watching the entire Ryan Seacrest special on New Year's Eve. You hear him introduce about 25 different artists, they perform, and then you hear him say the phrase, we're just a few more minutes away, about 10,000 times in a span of four hours. Others of us, which I consider myself to be in this category, we try to go to bed around nine or 10 p.m. And uh, you know we're exhausted from the day. We're exhausted from the whole year, actually. And I get in bed and I lay my head down and I'm so excited to not have to mess up my sleep pattern going into the new year. And then right outside my window, it sounds like awards have started because people decide to shoot off fireworks. Now, don't get me wrong, I love fireworks. And I've gotten so used to it on New Year's Eve. I'm totally cool with it. So I hope that you shot off fireworks this year. But what's the funniest thing for me every single year at New Year's Eve is my cat's reaction. If you have a pet... At home, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, your pet's least favorite day of the year is either July 4th in the evening or it's New Year's Eve right around 12 a.m. I mean, it it is just brutal for that cat. She actually will start coming upstairs now. She will get under one of our covers upstairs when we're about to go to sleep before the fireworks even start. Like, she knows something is about to go down. But this year, I was at my own place. I was at my house by myself this year. And it was around 9 or 10. It was actually 10.30 at this point, I think. And I wasn't gonna try to go to bed because I knew what was about to come in just a few hours. I wasn't gonna be able to stay asleep. And so what I decided was, I'll just call my mom or dad up, see what they're doing at their house, see if there's any fireworks going on, just FaceTime them. And right before I dialed my mom's number, I thought back to the last time that I called my mom after 10.30 p.m. And the last time I called my mom after 10.30 p.m., she thought I had either gotten into a nearly fatal wreck or I was sitting in the hospital, like automatically assuming the worst as mothers often do. Now, you may be able to re- relate with that story in some capacity in your childhood. Maybe it's a spouse right now. Maybe it's still a parent. That you know, when I call this person at this time of day or this time of evening, it's probably not going to be the best initial response. But this morning, I want to speak about a different type of call. I want to talk about how we respond when God calls us. What do we do when he calls? If you're taking notes, that's the title of my message. What do we do when he calls? You see, because I believe that whether you've heard or felt the call of God yet or not, whether you wanted to accomplish certain things in 2020 for God and you actually did or not, or whether you even follow Jesus today or not, I believe that regardless of where you find yourself, the same is true for each and every one of us. We all want our lives to have some sort of higher meaning and higher purpose. I believe that's how God designed it to be, that he created us to have some sort of higher purpose for our life. And it's actually a higher meaning and purpose that only he himself can bring us into, whether we like it or not. And this morning, I believe that there's a passage of scripture that we're gonna look at. There's a story In Scripture, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, with a guy named Moses that went through this same struggle. God, how do I respond when you call? So whether you've heard the call or not, I'm believing in faith that God has something for you today. And even if you don't walk out of here knowing what your meaning and your purpose and your calling is, I believe you're gonna walk out of here with a new posture. You're gonna walk out of here with a new perspective when it comes. So if you'll join me turning to Exodus chapter 3, And chapter four, they're right there side by side, second book in your Bible, Exodus 3 and 4. We're gonna be bouncing around this passage, this story of Moses. This is the story of when (laughs) Moses receives his call. So starting in chapter three, Moses went to this mountain called uh, Sinai. And this mountain's also referred to as Mount Horeb, where we get the name for this church. And when he got to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, he saw a burning bush. And in that burning bush was the voice of God coming out of it. Now, this is also during the time That the Israelites are in Egyptian oppression and captivity, in Egyptian slavery. They are under Egyptian persecution right now. And the leader of Egypt is named Pharaoh. And so when you hear that name in a moment, that's who we're referring to. And so I want to start reading in verse 7. You can follow along if you'd like. The words will be on the screen as well. Here's what the Lord says to Moses. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey and Krispy Kreme donuts. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites now live. Look, God said, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, he says to Moses, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Here's the key, verse 10. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. So here Moses receives his call from God. The meaning and the purpose that his life is gonna have, but then there's what the Bible tells us immediately following. Because in verse 11, here's what the Bible says in response, but Moses protested, underline that word if you're, an underliner of the Bible, protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And church, I wonder how many of us have been so stuck in a verse 11 mindset that we've completely missed out on the purpose of verse 10. We have been so focused on who we are not that we have completely missed out on who God has already called us to be. We feel like we've received some sort of calling or leading or guidance for our life from God Almighty, but our initial response is protesting it because we as people have this tendency to be more focused on the end result than the initial response. And so when the initial response comes to what God leads us into, what God's calling us to pursue, we often protest it. And that's why I think God wants us to understand today that the first step we have to take towards stepping into our calling, our meaning, and our purpose is disqualifying our doubt. We have to disqualify our doubt. You see, when Moses protests here, he does something that we often like to do with God sometimes. He tells God everything he's not. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not athletic enough, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I remember there was this one time in college, some friends and I went to cook out late at night. And um, the line was out the door when we got there. And so we got in line anyway, because, you know, us college students are great with our time and money and we didn't have anywhere to be. And so it was cold outside. We stood in line. And about two minutes after standing in line, I look over to my left and there's this set of tables. Nobody's sitting at them because like I said, it's pretty chilly out. But there's this gentleman who walks up. He's got a book bag on. He's got about three coats on and a lot of ripped clothing. And so he he immediately, when I looked at him, I thought he looked kind of depressed, he looked kind of lonely. And immediately in that moment, I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to just go talk to him. Because like I said, he, he looked like he felt lonely, he was weary, he was depressed, he was worn down. All of these things God can enhance. And I wanted to go talk to this guy so bad, but I kept getting in my way and I even kept getting in God's way. Because I kept giving God these excuses as to why I wasn't able to go. Well, I said, God, well, if I go, the conversation might go kind of long and I might like completely miss my opportunity to order and and eat with my friends in line. That's kind of the whole reason I'm here, God. Or if that doesn't happen, maybe I go and talk to this guy and I start talking to him about Jesus and I start sharing my faith with him and maybe he just kind of shuts me down. He gets kind of loud and he, he leaves and it's an awkward scene. Everybody's looking around and I'm right in the middle of it. And as soon as I was done protesting, he was gone. You see, there are a lot of different reasons why we protest, and chances are you can look back on 2020, and you could probably, if you think hard enough, point to one or two moments in that year where you felt so strongly, God, I feel like I need to go talk to that person. I feel like I, this is who I need to be in my family. I feel like that in my workplace, that's the kind of coworker my coworkers need, but I just don't think I'm going to do it. And then we don't just tell God, no, we start giving him reasons as to why we won't. And you see, Moses, here was protesting because he was focused on his self-doubt. He says things like, oh, Lord, I'm not very good with words. In fact, I often get my words tangled from time to time. And so when I go, these people aren't going to listen to me or even believe anything I have to say. And so I think you need to send somebody else because I just really don't think that I'm your guy. And maybe some of you are in that same boat with Moses right now. Looking back on this year, you have allowed everything that you're not to drag you farther, deeper and deeper and deeper into this pit of self-doubt. And now you have actually lost sight of any possible meaning and purpose that your life could possibly have in the future. And you know, I'm convinced that God knew Moses' self-doubt and he even knew our self-doubt was coming ever before we decided to verbalize it. Because in verse 13 in chapter three, here's what Moses says to God. God, if I go to the people of Israel and I tell them, hey, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you and I'm going to lead the charge of getting you out of Egypt, they're going to ask me in response, what is his name? And when they ask me that, what should I say? And then God leans in and he says, Moses, when they ask you who sent you, tell them I am sent you. That's the name that God gives himself in this moment. I am has sent me to you. And you know, there are numerous reasons why God uses that title for himself in this instance. But I think one of them is to simply show Moses and show some of us here today. Hey, just so you know, just to remind you in case you have forgotten, for everything you're not, I already am. You might not be eloquent with words, but I am. You might not be the hard worker you desire to be yet, but I am. You might not be the father your children deserve, but I am. You might not be the most loving, kind, and forgiving spouse on a day-to-day basis, but I am. If you don't hear anything else God wants to say today, and if you start getting on Instagram and scrolling as soon as this point's done, please don't miss this, that for everything you and I are not, God already is. In fact, I believe that God was, He currently is, and the Bible teaches He will be in the future. God fills in the gaps where we're weak. He exceeds our strengths, and He fills in the gaps where we're weak. For everything we're not, God is. And Jesus himself in the New Testament even talks about this very concept. There's seven different times in the gospel of John where Jesus starts a statement with those words, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. And in every one of those statements, Jesus first reveals that he is God in the flesh. Because people listening will most likely know that God referred to himself as I am when he spoke to Moses many years ago. But the second thing that Jesus does is he once again reminds the people listening and us reading when we read it in John that for everything, not just some things, everything you're not, God is. And so you say, Bryce, that's, that's cool and all. I see that kind of got you fired up. But how does that apply to my life right now? I'm glad you asked. You see, in that same statement, to Moses when God says, when they ask you who sent you, say, I am. God also reminds Moses that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the reason I tell you that is to tell you this, that if God was faithful in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which you can, as soon as we're done here, go look up and and see exactly what I mean. And if he was faithful in the life of Moses, because as we're going to see in a few moments, he did indeed lead the people out of Egypt, that were in Israel, if God was faithful to all four of them, and God was also faithful to his own people through the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and he's been faithful ever since, then I have no reason to believe that even when a virus begins out of nowhere and we start a new year not knowing what it holds, God is going to still be faithful to his people. If you walked in here questioning whether God was faithful, the answer is yes, he is. God's been faithful. God currently will be faithful. God will be faithful in the future. And I believe that for us to fully experience God's faithfulness, for us to fully experience God's power as it relates to his purpose for our life, we first have to disqualify our doubt. And we have to, at the same time, recognize that for everything we're not, God is. But church, even after we get past our self-doubt, there's often points in our life when we hit and we, We feel like we have some doubt about the situation we're about to step into itself. And Moses faced the same thing. We start asking the famous what if questions. So we started at I'm not. And once we get past the I'm nots, usually we'll hit the what if phase. And Moses did the same thing in chapter four, verse one. He says to God, what if they won't believe me or listen to me? Even after I say everything you want me to say, God. What if they say the Lord didn't really appear to you and send you to us? And so in response, God goes from telling Moses about his power to now showing Moses his power. But I think there's this interesting aspect to God's power that is very, very, very often missed. When we read about it, when we hear it spoken about like right now, when we witness it for ourselves, there's one aspect of God's power that I don't want us to miss. And it's so clear in this passage, God wanted to use Moses and he wanted Moses to participate. And if we're gonna respond well to God's call, whether we've heard it yet or not, we have to be willing to participate in power. You see, God invites Moses to simply be the vessel by which his power flows through in each and every one of these signs. You see, in verse three, after seeing that Moses had this staff in his hand, he said, all right, Moses, throw the staff to the ground. And when you do, it's gonna turn into a snake. And then to turn it back into a staff, pick it up by its tail and it's back into a staff. And God says, well, Moses, if if they still don't believe you at this point, after you do that, after you say everything I want you to say, then I need you to put your hand inside your cloak just like this. And when you pull it out, there's gonna be this severe skin disease. Everybody's gonna be grossed out. But then when you put it back in and pull it out again, it's gonna be clean as it was. And then Moses, if they still don't believe you, I want you to scoop up some water from the Nile River and then pour it on the ground. And right in front of you, when you do, that water is gonna turn into blood. You see, every single miracle required Moses. Not that he was the one providing the power, but rather he was simply just a participant. And I wonder if some of us, if we're truly honest right now, have allowed our self-doubt and our what-ifs to keep us sitting on the sideline when it comes to our faith. We've already told ourselves that we aren't good enough to go do what God wants us to do with our life, to be the spouse, the parent, the coworker, the role model that God wants you to be this year. And so we get comfortable with not being a participant and it even gets to the point where we apply this principle to the parts of us that are struggling with sin, that have some burdens. And I have a very great example of this last year. There was a point last year where, during the quarantine season, I came to church, normal work day, and then I went home. And as soon as I got home, I just, I was just really at the end of it. I was very confused with what we were going through. I was really burdened by it. And I remember walking upstairs, shutting my door in my room, and getting down on the carpet on two knees, and I just started crying out to God. I was like, God, I don't know what is going on right now. I don't know where all this came from. I don't know what your purpose is in all of this. But then I switched the prayer a little bit, and I I started to do some internal focus. And I started crying out to God because there was certain struggles in my life, God, that that during this quarantine season seemed to be reappearing. And I don't want to be facing these struggles. And so God, I just pray that you would take those away. That's how I ended the prayer. God, just take these away. And I said, amen. And then a few moments later, I felt this whisper, but it wasn't from God. It was from the devil. And the whisper that the devil was trying to get me to hear was something like this. That's right, Bryce. That's right. Just keep asking God to take the struggles, the sins, the burdens away. Because you and I both know he's got the power to do it. And Bryce, one day, you're just gonna wake up in the morning and poof, it's all gonna be gone. You see, in every lie the devil tells us, there's some aspect of truth, I believe that. And the aspect of truth in this lie, in this whisper, was that God does indeed have the power to take away our sins and our struggles and our burdens, our baggage. The lie was that it wouldn't require any action from me. And today, maybe you're stuck in a very, very similar position. You've, you've gotten so comfortable with who you currently are, who you've been this past year, that you have lost sight of who God wants to make and mature you to be. And I believe that God wants you to participate in the process, participate in his power, And allow yourself to get up off the sideline where it's been too comfortable and actively participate in what God wants to do in you and what God wants to do through you. But even once we disqualify our doubt, even once we learn to participate in power, there's one more thing that I believe this story teaches us and it's arguably the most important. There's this choice that we have to make constantly. There's this choice that Moses had to make constantly. And he had to choose between two avenues. One was the avenue of his own ability. The second one is the one I believe God desires. It's the avenue of his availability. There's two paths Moses had to choose between. Am I gonna be focused on my ability, which he was very often initially, or am I gonna choose to take a posture of availability? But I think that there was this point that Moses hit Before he was too focused on his ability, before he got to the I'm nots, before he got to the what ifs, before he started to doubt anything, I think that he was available to God. And it's in chapter three, verse four. And here's what the Bible says. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look at the bush, God called to him from the middle of the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And then here's how Moses responded. Here I am. Three simple words, here I am. You see, in that moment, Moses was available to be used by God, but the significance here is that that statement came before the calling did. And church, whether you have heard the calling of God upon your life or not, some of you know pretty well what God wants you to do with your life. Some of you haven't heard it yet. Regardless of what boat you're in, the truth is it is really, really easy to be available, to be used by God before he ever calls us to do anything tough or awkward or uncomfortable. And then it starts to shift, just like it did for Moses. We start to doubt. We start to recite the I'm nots and the what ifs. And for some of you, he's been inviting you to this higher way of living. But you know that in order to get there, there are some things in your life that's got to leave. There's some struggles that you've been holding on to too tightly. And you just don't know if you're ready to give those up yet. And at the same time, our fear of failure is truly maximized when we get in God's way and we focus too heavily on our own ability. And if you know the story of Moses, you know that he did everything God said he was going to do and more. He was faithful. He finally got to the point where he could be available to be used by God. But church, even if your calling isn't to lead a whole people group, even if your calling has nothing to do with even leading people at all, the same tendency, the same reality has this this tendency to slip in and out of our minds. And it's this question that we pose to ourselves. How do I keep moving forward toward a God-given purpose, a leading of some kind that God's got me walking in, when the situation around me doesn't turn out how I thought it would? And I have a strange suspicion that a lot of us were asking that very question last year. And we might still be asking, That very question, how do I keep moving forward when things don't go my way? You see, in Moses' case, what, what this looked like was he went to Pharaoh on many different occasions. And every time he went to Pharaoh, he said the same thing. He said, Pharaoh, I need you to let the Israelites go. God is commanding you to let the Israelites go, so you need to do it. Pharaoh laughed in his face, said no, and sent him on his way every time except for one. And I can only imagine What Moses must have been thinking on the long road back, knowing that he just got shut down. God, you sent me here. You said that your people were gonna be let go and I was gonna lead the charge, but there's something in the way constantly. And he kept going back again and again and again and again and again. For some of you here today, what this looks like, that's getting you to ask that question is, you're doing poorly in grad school, and you're trying to figure out whether that's still the right next step for you. You're like, God, I felt like this was the right degree that I'm supposed to be pursuing to get to where you want me to be, but it just isn't working out, and you're starting to ask questions. You're starting to doubt. For others of you, this looks like an unhealthy rhythm that you've been stuck in for a while. And you've been trying to break or change it, but you just can't figure out how. And now you're at a point so low that you are actually believing there's nothing God could possibly do with your life that has any sort of meaning or purpose. For others of you, maybe you just got married recently, and then you figured out the honeymoon phase ended pretty quickly. And now you and your spouse seem like you're constantly arguing, and it's got you asking the question, God, did I make a mistake? Is this actually where I'm supposed to be going in all of those scenarios and thousands and thousands more that you could possibly be in today, it's got us asking the same question, is it even worth it anymore? Last year, I believe that there were many points where I myself asked that very question. God, I don't understand how it could possibly be worth it anymore. It was great many years ago leading up to this point, but 2020 hit and dang, I don't know if it's worth it anymore. Is it even worth it to keep going? How do I keep moving forward towards what you've got me going towards? And I'm sure that those words were ringing in and out of Moses' head too during this entire segment. But I believe God also knew exactly what to say to Moses. He knew exactly what to promise us in advance, before any of the what ifs came, before any of the I'm nots came, before any of the doubts came, before any of us found ourselves in any pit of despair or doubt or frustration, he knew what to say. It's in chapter three, verse 12. The Lord says five simple words to Moses that I desperately believe he wants to to show you today. He wants to give you today to hold on to tightly. He tells Moses before he ever takes a step towards his purpose, he says, Moses, I want you to remember I will be with you. I will be with you. And you see those words, they they have power to keep us going toward our God-given purpose, whether we know what it is or not yet. They have the power to keep us moving towards Jesus Christ himself because they free us up to simply just be available. God, I know the promise you've made me. And it's that you're gonna be with me every step of the way. And so I can take every single step in confidence knowing that I'm not doing it alone. There's this story that I heard for the first time when I was at Asbury, as I mentioned the first week of November. And the story goes that there was this Bible college class in the 1900s at a school in Illinois. And they were in an evangelism class at this point. And the professor was about to start a unit on historic revivals. And so he decided to take his class all the way over to England to study John Wesley. And if you know that name, John Wesley, he's the founder of Methodism. We've mentioned him a few times before on this stage. And if you don't know anything about him, I'd invite you to go look him up. He did incredible things for God. So they went over to England and they went into John Wesley's old house to to see where he would have grown up, where he lived. And the story goes that as the class walked in, they saw the kitchen area They started taking notes. They saw the living room area. They took some more notes. Didn't have any cameras at this time. So they just took tons of notes about everything they saw. They were amazed at this point, but then they walked upstairs. And upstairs, they made their way into John Wesley's bedroom where he would have grown up. And next to his bed, there was this rug, piece of carpet on the ground. And one of the students raised his hand. He said, Professor, I, I see there's a piece of carpet next to John Wesley's bed. And it's got these like two indentions in it. And I was wondering if you could explain what that's for, if that's there by accident or mistake or anything. And the professor giggled a little bit and he said, well, that was actually the last thing I was gonna tell you. This, this piece of carpet is right where John Wesley would have woken up every morning and gone to sleep every night praying. You see the, the two indentions on the ground were from John Wesley's knees because of how much time he spent praying. And the student asked, well, what was he praying for? And the professor said, well, actually, he was praying that God would revive the world around him, God would revive his community and that he would use John Wesley to do it. You see, because when when John Wesley walked outside his house, he looked to his left and he looked to his right and he saw the same thing that we see when we walk outside Mount Horeb, when we walk outside our house, we see turmoil, we see pain, we see frustration. We see evidence of all those things everywhere we turn because we live in a broken world. And so the students were in awe at this point. That was the last stop on the tour and they made their way back to the bus. And the the, the professor was counting roll, making sure everyone was on the bus when they got into it because they were about to go back to the airport, didn't want to leave anybody behind. And he noticed one student was missing. And so he went back into the the house, checked the kitchen, didn't see him, living room didn't see him, went upstairs. As he made his way up the stairs, he heard this still small voice praying. It was the voice of the student. And so he crept up to the doorway and all he could see was the student in this posture right here. And he was on the carpet right where John Wesley's knees were. And he started to listen in to see what the student was praying. And He said, the student said very simply, God, this is a broken world. But the key is that I've seen you spark revival before. And so I pray that you do it again. And you do it again through me and my availability. And when the student said amen, the professor walked over, tapped him on the shoulder, and told him it was time to go. And so at that moment, the professor and Billy Graham made their way back to the bus to go back to the airport. And if you know the name I just said, you know that the rest is history. And you know, I've done a lot of study on Billy Graham all the years of my life. I've been to his library numerous times in Charlotte to learn much about him. I've heard every single sermon that's possibly available of his anywhere online multiple times. And I even know his pastor for the last 25 years of his life personally. And in all that study I've done about Billy Graham, there's one trend that I see in the life of him, in the life of John Wesley, in the life of Moses, and it's this, they're all human. And because they're all human, They hit points in their life where they ask that question, the same question that some of you may be asking today, is it even worth it? And I believe that there was one thing that kept Billy Graham going, that kept Moses going, that I believe God wants to keep you going. And it's constantly coming back and either physically or metaphorically getting in this posture right here. As we go into this new year, too many of us have been in a very different posture. And it's changed us to a very different perspective. But today, I believe that more so than anything you could possibly take away from this sermon, I pray that you'd remember this posture because this can change it for you. This posture might not give you meaning and purpose, but it'll constantly remind you where your meaning and purpose comes from. It'll constantly bring you back to the only source of hope, peace, joy, love that you could ever find in this world. John Wesley figured it out and God used this life to start a movement. Billy Graham figured it out, and he used his life to reach millions of people. I pray that I would be someone who figured it out, and God would use my life and my availability, and I pray the same for everyone in this room and watching online. It's the avenue of availability. After we disqualify our doubts, we move past those. We have to learn to participate in God's power, not just sit on the sideline. But most importantly, we have to come back to two knees, And just say, God, I'm here for you. Whether I know where you're leading me or not, I'm here. And I'm ready to do this thing called life with you this year. So I want to leave you with a question as we close. It's a question that was posed to me my freshman year of college when I transferred into CIU. And it's this very simple question. Are you willing to give God your yes? Are you willing to give God your yes? Yes. There's a, a class that I was in when I was a freshman at CIU. It was called Spiritual Formation. We had a guest speaker one day and he walked in and the first thing he said at the beginning of class was, I want everybody to pull out a blank sheet of paper. And on that piece of paper, I want you to write down all your ambitions, all your dreams, the goals that you've got for your life. When you die one day at what you want to be able to look back on and say you accomplished for God's kingdom, write it all down. And we were very excited about this. We got hyped up and we started writing it all down. And then he said, all right, When you're finished with that, I want you to tear it in as many pieces as you possibly can and throw it away. And so we're a bit confused at this point, but we did. And then he pulled out this piece of paper that I've carried with me every day since. You'll see a magnified photo on the screen. And at the top of it, it just says, God's plan for my life. And at the bottom, it has a place for me to sign. And you'll see that I signed my very poor signature there. But it's blank in between. The professor was posing the same question to us that I just posed to you. Are you willing to give God your yes? For me, that was giving God my yes in advance. At that point in my life, I had no idea I'd ever be on this stage. I had no idea I'd ever have a microphone in my hand talking to people. I had no idea that I'd be serving at Mount Horeb in any capacity other than just attending on Sundays. I had no idea that I'd be in seminary right now. I had no idea, but God did. And what I did in that moment was I gave God my yes in advance. God, I don't know what it'll cost me. I don't know where you'll lead me. I don't know who I'll do it with, but I'm telling you the answer is yes before you ever pose the question. For some of you today, the yes is gonna be a different yes. Because for you, 2020 has forced you to lay down something that you felt like was a calling upon your life. You felt like God was leading you in this general direction and you were pursuing him rigorously, but then... March 15th of 2020 hit, and it was a setback. It was viewed as a letdown, and so you've set it down. Today's the day that I believe God wants you to just say yes again, to pick it up and say, God, I, I felt you lead me to this. I feel like this is what you wanna make out of my life, and so I wanna pursue it once again. Maybe that's your yes. For, for others, your, your yes may be the same that it was for me. God, I don't know where I'm going, but I know that you've got it in your hands. I know that you can see it before I ever will. And I know that you can do more with my availability than I could ever do with my own ability. And so I'm telling you, yes, in advance. And maybe for some of you, the yes that God needs from you is to say yes to know him on a personal level. You know, there was, there was this point it blows my mind every time I read it. There was this point in the New Testament where Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was getting to the end of his life, and he kind of felt like he, he was sensing something was coming. And he had lived a perfect and sinless life up until this point, but there was this night, this one evening in particular, where he was with his disciples in a garden called Gethsemane, and he went off by himself, and he got in this same posture. Just he and the Father. And he looked up towards heaven, and he said, God, I I feel like what's coming is gonna be pretty brutal. It's gonna cause me a lot of pain. It's gonna cause me to suffer. And so God, if there's any other way for us to go about this, let's do that instead. But ultimately, Father, I want it to be your will, not mine, not anybody else's. You see, what Jesus Christ was doing in that moment was he was giving the Father his yes when he was hanging on the cross, he looked back in that moment and said, I said, yes. I didn't say no. I didn't try to do it my own way. I didn't try to figure it out on my own. I just said yes to the creator of this universe, knowing that he would take my life and take it to a higher purpose, make something beautiful out of it. And because Jesus gave the father his yes in that moment so many years ago, he's gifted you with the opportunity right now to give that yes back to where it belongs. Regardless of what scenario you're in, whether you know Jesus Christ right now or not, I believe God wants a yes from every one of us in this room. So the question that we started with was what do we do when God calls us? Some of us have heard it, some of us haven't. Some of us are close to God, some of us aren't. But what do we do when he comes knocking, when he calls us? And church, I think that the answer in simplest terms is that we we pick up our cross as if we were picking up the phone and we respond in joyful obedience, knowing that the God of this universe, the God who was with Moses, the God who created you and I, the God that's in this very room and in your home right now, will never and has never led or will lead his people astray. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you first for Jesus Christ and the yes that he gave you so many years ago to just be available, just be obedient. And nobody could possibly have seen coming the purpose that you had his life be about. People didn't recognize him. Maybe some of us in this room have been blind as well. But today's the day I believe someone gives you their yes to maybe pick up what they've put down and once again pursue you with everything they've got. Maybe the yes for them today is to simply say yes in advance, not knowing what you'll lead them to, but knowing who holds it. And then maybe there's someone here listening to the sound of my voice who needs to accept you for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. And their yes today is simply saying yes to follow you, Jesus. I pray that none of us would miss this moment. Father, I pray that you'd remind us of the incredible testimonies of the people like Moses and John Wesley and Billy Graham. And I recognize that there are numerous different stories in this room. There are burdens carried in here today. But I pray that you would take those burdens and make them into something beautiful as only you can. Remind us today, Lord, as we close in this time of worship, that not only are you good, but you're the only one who can do way more with our availability if we're willing to give it to you than we ever could on our own, with our own ability. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be in your house, whether we're here physically or virtually, to worship you with everything we've got. And I pray that we would use these next moments to worship as if it was our last opportunity to do so. Lord, we're grateful for you. We love you. We give you all the honor, praise, and glory that you alone deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.